popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360-degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. So, what does the end user of the future look like? Is it going to be artificial intelligence? Is it going to be some kind of machine? Will I be replaced? That conversation is not new. I found um, newspaper articles from London from the year 1800-something that were talking about that exact problem. So it's, again, not a new problem, but it becomes bigger and bigger as we go because things are going faster and faster. What does this mean? This means we are living in a VUCA world. Who has heard the term VUCA already before? All of you? Now, this is really fascinating for a couple of reasons. Imagine you're driving down the road and it's getting dark and, you know, the weather is getting really, really, really nasty and bad and you're driving towards this lighting and, and it's just... It's incredible. It's awful. It's just, you don't know where to go. Your navigation system doesn't work. You're in a foreign environment. You simply don't know what to do. Ah, that's exactly the situation of sales leaders these days. Many times, very often. I talk to many of them. So living in a VUCA world means, uh, of course, volatility. Uh, there's high speed and unpredicted and unexpected challenges. Uncertainty. Uncertainty is the killer number one when you talk to your, uh, to your team members, when you talk to your customers. Uncertainty is something that needs to be addressed. Complexity, oh my goodness, I cannot understand anything anymore. And of course, ambiguity, uh, the world becomes blurry and fuzzy and we don't really know how to make decisions or executive decisions or how to deal with a situation in the family. It's not just only business related, it's something very personal. And that's another reason why this fascinates me so much because so many things I can apply in my real life and I do know people outside of SAP. I have friends who have normal jobs. Um, so imagine the world would look like this. Very nice and sunny. There's some clouds. Everything's blooming. And there's a nice road ahead, slightly curved, and it's really pleasant. Imagine you can move from the VUCA world to uh, what, what Bob Johansson of the Institute for the Future, and this institute exists, Institute for the Future, calls VUCA Prime. And the core concept is to move from volatility to vision. Now, as sales managers, of course, we've got to have a vision, vision statement, mission. Yeah, but be clear to focus on what you really want to achieve. Provide the context 
that is so important to really provide the context. To move from uncertainty to understanding. Now, uncertainty, the killer number one. What if people would really understand what you are trying to achieve? What if you would understand what their concerns are? So it's both ways. And um, it's about unimagined perspectives. So this gaining different perspectives and being open to gain different perspectives and look at what the critics have to say for a moment and understand their arguments helps you sharpen your own perspective. Super important. Actively listening, that is easily said. Yeah. And, and it's very hard to be done, especially in a remote environment where, by the way, this is my first business trip here since March, 2020. Yeah. I realize people have legs. Um, being in a home um, office type of environment, um, is, is, it makes it really hard to get your point across that you want to actively listening, listen as a, as a manager, as a leader. Um, but I do not want to talk about um, that today. Moving from complexity to clarity. Oh my goodness, now I understand what he or she has in mind. Now I, I demonstrate the different, I, I demonstrate why it's important and, and why it's important for me to gain the view of, of other perspectives. Communication and transparency is key, also easily said. The last point, moving from ambiguity to agility. Ooh, what if we do not follow the plan? What if we say, I don't even know how to move forward. Let's figure this out together. Let's test and try and, and learn by failing. And I'll come to that in a, in a moment. But these were the topics that were driving me to engage in a master project around sales leadership in the digital future. I've got a question then for you, Louise, around what, what can sales leaders do to create that sort of environment for innovation uh, for their teams? Um, so, you know, innovation needs some downtime, some thinking time, some space. You know, it's, um, well, this is what I believe, that, yes, there's, there's times for people to think independently, to let ideas mull and create and then bring them together in the team to have that collaboration and sharing. But that's when the whole psychological safety comes in, let everybody have a say. Just listen to all the little nuggets that each person has. Um, again, that combination of giving people some time to, to think, um, some training, some, you know, some ways to generate new ideas, and then bring them all together to, to really consider how can they do things better. Appreciative inquiry is a good one. Remembering what you do well. How can you build on, on that? Um, but it is, people need time to think like that. And um, because of the fast pace that we're all working at, we don't often give ourselves that time. Your point yeah. about sort of coming into the office and that sort of social interaction as well is the, mm. talking about innovation. You know, I think you can do so much more with, uh, with personal innovation than you can do, you know, through through physical being in the same room than, than remotely, potentially. There's something special about bringing people together in a structured way, you know, perhaps giving them the time to reflect and brainstorm and innovate, which you, which you don't get with people who are remote working all the time. Uh, so I'm, I'm really pleased now that we're seeing this trend to come together more often. Uh, you know, there's a balance, obviously, with this mm. hybrid world in which we live. 
Um, but there was an interesting LinkedIn article about the uh, randomness. I don't know if you've seen it posted by someone who's quite close to us, Claudia. And it's uh, this notion of innovation and random thoughts. And it just sparked this, this whole idea around innovation, you know, and how important that is in a world that's changing so quickly. Yeah. And I love the fact you, you talk about space. And I know we're coming at space from slightly two different angles here, because do you remember the space curve that we developed um, as a consequence of the pandemic? I think that's so true now, you know. Yeah. Space was, um, you know, survival, then preservation, and then agility and co-creation. Um, so, yeah, so I, I agree. Yeah, in a, in a world that's, that's so fast moving, you know, being able to find that time to reflect is so important. I think it's really difficult because there's no doubt that this year we're going to see targets increasing and resources decreasing. And uh, it's just going to be putting a huge amount of pressure, I think, on sales teams to to hit hit their targets in quota. Um, I think uh, we've seen a survey recently that uh, talked about, you know, quotas being increased, and I think that's uh, yeah. that's so true. Never seen a year where targets have decreased, <laughs> even with all of these external factors going on. Um, so to be able to do it, I think is going to take a lot of mental uh, resilience, I think, to make sure that we can give the teams the space to be able to innovate and come together and, and reflect. Is, is creating space for, for an individual or a team as simple as blocking out time in, in the diary? Or how would you, how would you as, a, as a leader, um, advise sales leaders to create that space for the teams? It's a really difficult one. So everyone's so individual, but I think it's knowing what the person, so there is something there about getting to know individuals more personally and how, how might they um, create that space, asking them that question. So for those that like the walking, you know, sessions, for those that like to just sit down and read and ponder, you know, but it's, it's, I guess, trying to talk to them about how can they do that? How, what makes them innovate? For me, if I'm on a walk, I've got mm. ideas spinning around all over. It's, I think much better outside than I do inside. So, um, or when I'm driving, actually, sometimes I get, then you can never write it down, can you? But anyway. Um, so it, I guess it's individual, but you've just got to have those conversations. You've got, I think there is something now as well about knowing your team, really knowing them, understanding what makes them tick and helping them with that rather than treating everybody the same. I think it's a, it's culture, isn't it? You know, we, all, we talk about culture and strategy and, and um, it's what kind of culture do you want to create in your team? And if you've got a culture that you can encourage of reflection and practice and, and um you know, recognizing the importance of giving people time, then you you will, um, you know, you will make space for yourself to do it, but also other people around you to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of this is is about the way in which sales leaders need to create the right culture to enable their sales teams to thrive. From my experience as well, 
because I know very well that we will get caught in the trap when we need to deliver results is, is often, especially as we kind of get towards the end of a quarter per se, that's the time really you need to have that space when the pressure is really increasing um, to think creatively and innovatively. Um, I mean, one thing that uh, I think is incredibly effective, um, certainly with my team, is creating um, space for coaching conversations as well. Um, because it's through coaching where you're encouraging that sort of reflective practice um, mm. that that can enable, you know, the individual to come up with ways um, of taking control of something um, or innovative ideas that they they may not have otherwise thought of. Um, but, you know, having those coaching conversations really, you know, it helps. Certainly if they're not managing to find time in their weeks to kind of uh, take themselves out of that situation for, for reflective thought. Well, I think before perhaps we go into how, how you know, sort of it works, I, I think it would be quite good to take a couple of steps back, if that's okay. And I'd just sure. like to talk about, um, about what we mean by culture. I think, I think that's, that's, I'd love to have that discussion with you. Um, and you've used the word values quite a bit as well as we've been talking and, and how the same word can be misinterpreted, you mm -hmm. know, by different people. And you come up with a very different perception, I guess, of, of what is meant by certain values and that influences culture in some way i guess mm -hmm. you know that it can translate into a, a very different type of culture depending on how you see different things even though the words are very similar um so could you could you explain um to our listeners what what you mean by culture and mm -hmm. and the link maybe with values yeah absolutely so culture or i'll go a step back if you look at the organization yeah, the organization has a structure, has a leadership, has brands, has um, technology, products, uh, but it also has culture. And culture is something that connects all this together. Some parts of the culture are typical of the environment, let's say, depending on which part of the world you are. Some part of the culture depends on in which area of business are you working, but some of it, it's very unique. So culture is something that anyone feels without knowing why, yeah? So when you talk to someone, mm -hmm. the impression they give you, it's a culture. It's not the, just the words they say, but it's how they do things. When you read about the company in the, in the newspapers or hear about on TV, the way they talk about them, the way their people make public appearances, it's culture. So culture is something that is so extremely unique that... For example, everything can be stolen or copied from an organization. Brands, people can be stolen, name can be, technology can be stolen, but the culture cannot be done because it's so unique and depends on all different aspects of organization. Starting from, as I mentioned before, where does the company name? For example, very simple, very simple thing. Do you call each other by names? Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that can depend on 
on uh, where you come from. I know that when I started to work, for example, and I worked with German companies, at that time they were all calling each other by surnames. Yeah? yeah. And it was part of the culture, of the culture of the whole country, not just the culture of the company. Yeah. But mm -hmm. once you went into UK, for example, everybody was calling each other by name. So that is a very simple influence of the mm -hmm. surrounding. But then you have also the influence of the values of the people who are in charge. Yeah. So if the leader, uh, the owner, CEO, the leadership team, or just the person who is a key opinion leader in your group behaves certain way, then this creates the culture in the company. It's a really interesting, I think everyone, of course, will know and have come across that word, you know, culture. I think what, what is more complex, and perhaps this is part of what you are sort of, if you like, getting to the core of, is it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a complex amalgam of, you know, uh, the um, influences that come to bear on an organization, which is influenced maybe mm -hmm. by the culture of the country in which you live. It's influenced by uh, the leadership styles like you've just mentioned. Uh, and, and I really like this notion as well that you've just mentioned about the fact that, that people can, you know, steal or or copy, you know, similar things that you might be copying from a marketing point of view, but they can't copy culture. Culture is something that's totally unique, you know, to an organization. Um, but it's got lots of moving parts, I guess. Uh, it is the leaders, but it's also, I guess, the people that work inside an organization mm -hmm. as well. It's, it's not just down to the leader that the culture is going to be defined. I would imagine, you know, the bigger the company, perhaps, the the more you're going to be uh, influenced by all the layers of management and mm -hmm. people, you know, that, that help build a culture. Do you think, Vesna, or, or, is, or not? Yeah. Absolutely, Phil. If you look at a startup, for example, let's, let's look into the startup, which was organized, uh, set up by two people. Yeah. They, they create a culture among themselves. Yeah. And if their, their value, they can be different in style, like Mateusz and me, Mateusz is introvert, I'm extrovert. Yeah. But that doesn't really influence the values that we have. Yeah. So if mm -hmm. we have similar values, the organization will grow in similar way because we will employ people who have similar values. Or if we employ someone who doesn't have similar values, soon there will be a clash. Yeah. And if there will be a clash, you can sometimes maybe keep a person because you need that profile, but in the long term, this will not work because everyday, everyday situations, everyday activities will be performed completely different by then, that person in line with values or not in line with values, then you will do them as a start, as a um, owner, for example. So this is mm -hmm. where there are two owners and one new person comes in. So that one new person will adopt, yeah, adjust or leave. Yeah. Once you grow, for example, up to approximately, there is a theory that says that up to approximately 150 to 200 people, the culture and the values can be transformed down from the leadership to the employees. This, of course, depends if they're sitting together, if they meet each other very odd, because you can lead by example. Mm -hmm. And leading by example is the most powerful way of transforming culture to others. But the bigger the company, 
or if they sit in different uh, locations or in different countries, like the multinationals. Like I mentioned, GSK had a completely different culture in CE than the global culture. It was mm -hmm. not in conflict, right? It was just different. Or I would say yeah. maybe it was in conflict sometime, but it was not better or worse. It was just different. And a lot of people who came to work from one part of GSK to another might have felt more comfortable in one team than in the another. And that is not about their, uh, their professional abilities. It was not about their knowledge. It was about culture. Phil, how do you think the influence of our AI is going to affect those in, in sales in a, in a selling role? And the second part to my question is, could AI take over what a salesperson does? Thank you, Will. And, um, I was going to throw that question back at you yeah, as well, but um, I won't. I'll, I'll give it an answer. I, I mean, I think that sales is um, approaching a kind of new frontier in, in many ways. And I, I, I think uh, traditionally we've seen um, the kind of sales systems and tools that are supporting the salesperson very much being designed I'm talking here about CRM and, and other tools, you know, designed to serve management. And I, I, I and, and salespeople have, you know, seen these as a, as a tool to actually make their life more complicated and more difficult. And I've not come across many organizations who have said to me, do you know something, you know, our CRM is wonderful. And I just love spending time keying in information and data to it. And I think, I think what's exciting about the future in terms of technology is that we're we're seeing that there are tools now being designed and built which put the salesperson very much at the center of their focus so um that these are the tools that can enable a, a salesperson to better predict you know how much income they may be getting from their territories or better respond to uh questions or about an RFP that may be issued. Um, but uh, so no, I think we're I think we're really at an exciting point. And I think you know we we we've got kind of two points of view about um, chat GPT. Um, the one is that it's an it's going to be an incredibly useful sales tool in the sense of making it much quicker for salespeople to you know draft emails or do research. I mean it's quite unbelievable the power that this tool has to 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 get data together from different sources um but i mean we are all obviously concerned from an educational point of view about um issues of plagiarism and to what extent will these technologies start to kind of uh, move into the area of manipulation and not being authentic which is one of the key sort of values and principles of selling that that so much of our sales um approach is kind of based on so i i, th I think it's going to be an incredibly exciting uh, future actually i think we've just seen the start of it and i think it's really going to revolutionize how salespeople sell i think your your second question was is it going to make the role of sales redundant hmm. or you're saying is that the role of marketing is going to become redundant as well i'm looking at eddie here listening in <laughs> as well so no i i think it's going to make uh make life much easier i think we're going to become more productive in 
in uh, how we do things, leveraging these kind of technologies. Uh, so no, I'm I'm feeling optimistic about it. In fact, okay. So we we don't need to all find new jobs just yet. I don't think so. I mean, I remember being on a on an airplane traveling back from I think it was funny enough I think in Budapest where you know where you recently had your long weekend, Will. And I, I remember sitting next to this uh, this lady from, um, I think she was working for McKinsey. And when I told her what I did for a living, this is going back 20, 25 years. And I said I was in sales. And she said, why on earth would you want to be in sales? You know, you know, it, uh, sales is going to become redundant soon. And so, um, and, and she was talking about the role of inside sales and taking away from field sales. So, you know, and here we are 20 years later, you know, still sales as a percentage of population is about, you know, about 5% of a nation's population are involved in the sales kind of capacity, either in retail sales or B2B sales. So it's still a massively important area of what we do. But no, I, I think salespeople are going to be enabled actually by the technologies around them. You know, there may be some changes, you know, to the way sales teams are structured. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's going to help us do more with the resources we've got. You know, there yeah. may be some reduction of headcount. I'm not sure. I think it's still early days, really. I think it um, will impact on salespeople in the sense of the, the skills that they may need to um, develop, you know, how to, how to leverage technologies, how to look at data, how to analyze it, how to... Um, how to get the most out of, say, AI in order to meet customer requirements better. Um, because I think the expectation from customers is also going to shift. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, it's uh, we've always um, kind of talked about, you know, what are some of the key skills and competencies required of salespeople and sales leaders? And, you know, we talk about reflective practice um, and, we have, you know, we have positioned reflective practice in this world, which is changing so quickly um, as being, you know, potentially one of the biggest, most important competencies required of salespeople, you know, how to make sense of what's going on around them. And I think that, I think you're right. I think that, you know, these kind of AI tools um will encourage people to reflect more upon the data that they're able to get hold of very quickly and then make better and informed decisions. So I think this is going to make that particular competence even more important, you know, kind of moving forward. Slightly easier to do because it you don't have to spend so much time researching, you know, source material. You know, it's at your fingertips. So you can spend more time thinking about what sense to make of it and what your response is going to be as a consequence of looking at the data. Yeah, so I think, but but I think we're all at a bit of a early stage learning curve on it. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it how it um, sort of paves the way for the, for a new future. How do you recommend businesses slash teams split account management and new business development? A lot of sales roles are, are a blend of account management sales, then internal team management. For me, sales and account management are two different things. And those that excel at new business may not have the mindset to be an excellent account manager. 
that's an interesting question. Uh, ben, thanks. Uh, thanks for that question. So I think it, and there's been some interesting LinkedIn commentary on it as well. Um, I can't remember on a similar question and, you know, no matter whether you're an account manager or new business, you need to have that hunting mindset that's important for new business. And I thought that was quite an interesting take um, that he had. And um, so, so coming back to the first bit of your question about how do you recommend businesses teams split account management and new business development? What I've seen happen uh, in a lot of the accounts we have is a, is some kind of um, sales portfolio analysis where you start to segment, you, you go through a segmentation process where you start to look at um, the accounts uh, on two sort of axes. One is potential to grow and the other axes is sales volume. And then within those two axes, you're able to sort of group accounts into those accounts which have high revenue and high potential for growth and then you've got those accounts that have high volume but mid-level um, if you like ability to grow and then you've got some accounts which are high level but they actually just want a transactional relationship they don't particularly want an account manager to look after them. It's a transactional focus. I mean, I'm simplifying the segmentation process here a bit. I think that it's important that we start to consider the concept of lifetime value of an account over a period of time, and that there are going to be some accounts that are massively important to you that uh, may not be buying so much from you in the future, um, sorry, in the current time frame. Um, but are going to be hugely, you know, potential growth accounts in the future. And I think that if you had this um, account management, new business development, if you didn't have those structures, you know, in place, you run the risk of having a rather opportunistic approach to looking after accounts. And you run the risk of not being around to support those accounts when they really need your support moving forward. So my take on it is that it is a practice that I would recommend that you would separate the two, um, but that you would, through white space analysis, have um, this new business development opportunities within your existing accounts that, that would be the focus of your attention as opposed to completely new logos. Um, but how you manage your account, I mean, it's a costly investment to put into account management. So you need to be very careful about balancing the cost of sale and cost of support with the amount of revenue that you're actually generating from the account. I think you may be interested in, you know, maybe we could send it across to Ben, is we have a segmentation analysis uh, sort of framework that, that may be quite helpful as well for you, Ben. Yeah. Uh, to consider how you might segment the different accounts and then uh, yeah. and then how you support those accounts. So it's a bit difficult for me to explain on, you know, it's a, it's sort of a matrix that, that yeah. yeah, so that might be helpful as well. On your point, Nigel, I, um, I was working with uh, Compaq um, before they were acquired by Hewlett Packard. And um, uh, I was working with one of the Compaq account managers that was supporting Vodafone. 
and um, the Compact account manager done a, an amazing job to to change the relationship with Vodafone uh, from being pretty bad to being very good. And then when HP um, took over Compaq, they decided that they would put the HP account manager in as the lead on the account. And uh, and Vodafone basically told them to bugger off. <laughs> And it, and it was all based on the relationship. So I think your point about, you know, often customers have a strong point of view about um, uh, about the sort of people that they want to sort of support them and how they want to support them. So I think you raised such a good point, you know, in terms of using the customer customer feedback to influence how you then decide to support them. Maybe you can comment on where do the most um, most successful sales practitioners um, spend their time, and what what kind of activities do they? Um, what are the most high value activities that a salesperson can do? If there's only a set amount of time that we all experience, how should they be structuring or prioritizing their time? I mean, there's some quite interesting. Um, research done around, you know, where do star sales leaders spend their time versus those that don't uh, reach targets uh, or sort of don't perform quite as well, you know, with their team. So if we start start by just looking at the leadership kind of angle first, then the kind of areas that star leaders tend to spend more time than average sales leaders is going to be around strategizing territory planning, territory management, making sure that the plans are properly in place. Uh, they'll spend much more time working with their salespeople in early sales, sales cycle opportunities and not just be there for salespeople at the, at the, you know, when deals are due to be closed. They tend to spend more time coaching their sales teams rather than um, a proper coaching as opposed to sort of micromanaging around uh, spreadsheets and and data and statistics. So there's been, you know, quite a lot of research in terms of where, where managers need to be kind of spending their time. When you start to look at the data of how much face-to-face -face time do salespeople spend actually talking to customers, it's it's quite low. I mean, it, it varies from sector, uh, sector to sector. And, you know, one must question the amount of non-productive kind of admin time that sales teams seem to be spending their time on. And a lot of that's driven with a micromanagement attitude of, of the leaders to whom they report into. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, depending on which level we're talking about, there are different levers that can perhaps be pulled and adjusted. But I, I, I think I'm most excited about the role that some of the emerging technologies will play in making life easier for salespeople to get in front of customers and to you know, spend more of their time doing what 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 they should be doing, which is, you know, obviously selling to customers. Yeah. Philip agrees. Um, he's just put into chat. Planning is a key area for greater productivity in sales. I also suspect that many companies don't know where their star performers slash leaders spend their time yeah that's uh that's a really good point yeah we don't we don't come across um much current data um which 
goes into this analysis of where time is being spent. It tends to be, um, you know, research projects that are carried off maybe once every five years or so. We start to see what the stats kind of tell us. But I, I agree with you. Yeah, Phil, it's not often that you find organizations are really closely monitoring um, where sales managers spend their time. On the master's program that we run, we get managers to to actually bring to us the data of where they spend their time. And that for us is a a regular source of information. And it becomes a debate that we have with the master's cohorts about where they spend their time. And we link it, um, the data they produce to some of the research we've seen in the past, particularly produced by Gartner. Um, and we also link that kind of where you choose to put your time is influenced by, by your values and belief system. So it also links for us around, you know, what is the purpose of a sales leader? What kind of results do they want to achieve for their team? How important is it for them to achieve results from everyone in their team moving forward? I was very unhappy that we sort of, we've got this question submitted to us. Um, What's that? <laughs> that Gartner Research in 2021 said that 72% of buyers want a sales rep-free experience. And in 2022, Gartner Research says it's now 83% that B2B buyers would prefer ordering or paying for a service through digital commerce. How, as a salesperson, should I react to this? And how does it influence in the way that I sell now. Yes, it's quite interesting. And, and I think if you dig deeper into that research, uh, I think that it also shows how the age demographic um, is influencing some of that data. Um, I think with the, um, I think it's millennials who are much, much, you know, more digital savvy and, you know, they, they prefer that kind of method perhaps of doing their own research online and not engaging with salespeople. Um, so how as a salesperson should I, I react to this? And I think that it's not all altogether kind of negative in a sense. You know, if it's possible for buyers to buy solutions without having to engage with salespeople, I, I would have thought that, you know, that that's not a bad thing because you're meeting the needs of those buyers um, through a particular type of, of channel, um, which means that the sellers can spend more time, perhaps more quality time, focused on customers who do want that interaction, uh, uh, who do want those kind of relationships. I think what's interesting is that in a world, and we've talked about this quite a bit in the past, in the world that's changing very quickly, buyers don't always have the answers. And the only way they're going to find answers to particular problems that they have is through a heightened um, sense of collaboration and both, both with people from within inside their own companies, but also with suppliers and partners. And this is where I think the role of salespeople is going to sort of develop much more strongly, sort of moving into the future, um, that the kind of skills that are going to be required of salespeople, given that there may be fewer opportunities are going to be 
the more complex skills of problem solving, collaboration, co-creation. Um, so, yeah, I think as a salesperson, how should you react to this? I think I think that salespeople, you know, need to kind of read the tea leaves. They they need to look for ways of adding more value to the conversations that they have with customers. They perhaps need to be slightly more. Um, the word is that's been used is disruptive. They perhaps need to be more proactively creative in the way that they they suggest ideas to customers before they start uh, thinking of finding solutions to problems themselves. So mm. I think it's going to mean that sales are going to have to work harder, you know, to earn their, their bonuses and their commission uh, because they're going to have to add a degree of uh, sort of intellectual acumen to the way in which they go about selling. And not just wait for the orders to come in, but actually to go out there and find them and make things happen. Um, but I think those that do crack that particular code are going to be enormously successful. It is interesting. And um, McKinsey came out with some interesting um, insight into what is the sort of how how customer expectations are changing and therefore what are the skill sets required for salespeople? Yeah. Um, and we've actually, you know, recently we did a podcast on, on that and it's, um, and it's interesting because customers' expectations are, are as such that they expect a salesperson to be a fantastic kind of problem solver and also, you know, have information to hand at their fingertips. Uh, because they're already coming into the conversation with a degree of knowledge around what it is you do. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these kind of elements, I think, add to the, uh, the, the competency levels or what is expected for a salesperson. And I think that's going to become more and more um, complex and more specialized, perhaps. So if I can cast your mind back to the last AMA when you were talking about uh, the mindset work that is transforming the performance of the England cricket team. Oh, great talking about cricket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and in particular, the value in mindset change for sports people and how it's you know, easy to detect. Individuals and teams win much more frequently when they lose, when they have the right mindset. So... Are we safe from promising sales leaders that sales transformation based on mindset change will result in more deals and fewer losses? Yeah, I, th I, th I think the, the great thing about sport is the fact you can see it sort of happening in front of you. It's so obvious where you've got, you know, the same set of players playing under a new coach or a new manager and, you know, they're, they're achieving a sort of very, very different results and, you know that, that that that's not a skill issue or a competence issue. That's that's down to I guess strategy in part. You know we're going to play this style of game. Um, a mindset. You know, um, and the mindset is, you know, is one that's also supported with something we've spoken about before on these um, these AMAs. I think it's about the psychological safety, allowing people the space to know that if you are playing to this plan and you're you're out there to play an expansive style of cricket, it's okay if you get out first ball, you know, it's okay. You know, we expect that will happen. And so, 
uh, genuinely allowing or creating that sense of, look, we're playing to this game plan. Uh, you know, we hope you can score 150 runs, but you might not. <laughs> um, uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, everyone's in it together and we know what we're trying to do. And, and we've seen that in the transformative uh, sort of cricket team uh, that uh, we spoke about before. I know from the uh, work that we have done on mindsets with control groups in sales that the same applies. Um, and it may not apply over four or five days of a test match series um, because sometimes sales cycles take much longer to uh, to fulfill. Um, but uh, I know that where we have worked, um, particularly in my you know my doctorate um, thesis, was working with different control groups, exploring this notion of mindset and measuring the close ratios and cost of sale ratios uh, and market share ratios across teams that worked in Western Europe and Central Europe um, in a market that were, were fairly similar in terms of opportunity um, and seeing an extraordinary difference uh, in sales performance over that period of time. Um, and I've, I've, I've maybe cited this uh, previously, but when we started working with this community of um, sales, there were about 200 salespeople um, in this sort of two groups, if you like. Um, and the close ratios at the time were something like one in 15 uh, for winning, for 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 a winning sort of reasonably sized deal, some very large. And by the time that we finished the program after two and a half years, and this is published, you know, this is, this, you know, this is published evidence and, uh, and so on. The close ratios with, with were 72%. And um, we contrasted it with the other control group where we hadn't done any intervention around mindset. And we simply, sort of tracked their performance as business as usual. And they did improve their win ratios, you know, from one in 15, they ended up with a, a ratio of 33% at the end of uh, the two and a half years. So from a control grouping point of view, it was an absolute test that mindsets can really impact performance. And for me, it, it completely changed the way that we started to approach the way we develop salespeople and we develop managers as well. Um, it's much easier, I think, to deal with a sales team where the mindsets are in the right place, um, but perhaps where the skill sets aren't where you want them to be. Because it's much easier to work on developing skills and competence than it is changing someone's mindset. Um, so I'd much rather get the mindsets in place as the sort of foundation block of any Im any improvement that you might want to make in the selling organization, knowing that, yeah, if people aren't, heads are in the right space, then you can do amazing things with people. You know, rather than those organizations which have incredibly competent people, but they're just demotivated and there's this toxic culture that kind of exists that stops them from thriving. 
Um, but we've seen many instances of managers going in, inheriting a group of people who have had brilliant results and uh, using a different type of management approach, completely transforming the, the team performance. Um, so we have many, you know, many examples of managers who've, who've, who've made this kind of dramatic transformation built around uh, mindsets. And I think a lot of it is about growth mindset. You know, some people, they won't change and uh, they have a fixed mindset as opposed to growth. So growth mindset is incredibly important. But then it's also working on the specific sales mindsets that we, um, you know, very close to our hearts here at, at Consalia that we know uh, will produce results. <laughs>